0: Hello and welcome to Me Too. Thank you for listening. My name is Jess, subbing in for Naveen, and this is our second episode of the third season. Me Too Monologues is an annual show about identity entirely written, performed, and produced by members of the Duke community. Students, alumni, and faculty anonymously submit stories about their life experiences, and peers perform the monologues in a theatrical production. This spring will mark the 10th anniversary of the first MeToo Monologues production, A Brief History of MeToo. Priyanka Triazia started MeToo Monologues in 2009 with the help of the Center for Race Relations. Since then, MeToo Monologues has grown into an independent student organization that hosts shows over multiple weekends in the spring. In 2015, MeToo was launched at other universities, including UNC, Columbia, Trinity College Dublin, and Princeton. Today on the show, we have our founder, Priyanka, with us to talk about her experience starting Me Too monologues and seeing it evolve over the years. But first, here is sophomore Ila Cowell performing the opening monologue from this year's show, Conversations Times Three.
1: During a week of my freshman year, I was in a friend's room when an all-too-familiar conversation played out for the hundredth time. That conversation went a little something like this. An individual, we'll call him Nick, leans forward and squints at me asking, so what's your background? Like, what's your race? He poses the question with enough polite ignorance that I decide to answer. However, as soon as the adjectives Middle Eastern and Latina exit my mouth, Nick smiles, sits back in his chair and confidently exclaims, oh, so that's why you got in here. Meaning that I am not a smart student, but an affirmative action student. In my mind, I snap at him that one, my high school GPA was probably higher than his. Two, I earned my spot at Duke the same way my refugee first gen college student parents earned their spot in America. And three, just because my Brown family eats rich kebabs or dense tamales for dinner instead of Whole Foods rotisserie chicken doesn't mean for a second that he is allowed to disrespect me. That I stop myself before I say anything out loud because then he would be embarrassed and his embarrassment would make him label me an asshole. No point in being an asshole affirmative action student. My silence prompts swift defense from a friend. We'll call her Maria. Maria tells Nick off because she too is Latina and how dare he. Nick gets red in the face and apologizes. I brush it off. This conversation, my silence, the apologies, it all goes like clockwork every time. I bet a lot of you are wondering why I don't speak up like Maria. Normally I'm bossy and outspoken as hell, but in this situation, I can never respond. And that's because there's actually another version of this conversation that I am also all too familiar with. That version goes a little something like this. Same dorm room, same question, same players. Except this time when Nick hears about my mixed background, he frowns, sits back and flatly says, Wow, for someone so brown, you act really whitewashed. When I stay silent, Maria doesn't swoop to my defense anymore. Instead, she chimes in asking, so do you even speak the languages? In my mind, I snap at them and explain that my grandfather was harassed in the military for speaking his language. So he chose not to teach it to his children. A couple white men washed his mouth out with soap so strong that I can still taste it in my mouth whenever brown people ask me why I only speak English. Soap so strong that my eyes water and my mouth is chalky with shame when I speak the way I learned in class because I know I sound like a gringa. But honestly, how dare they judge my family for how we decided to survive in a world that was not made for us that I stop myself before I say anything out loud. Because then I'd be trying to justify my lack of culture. No point in being whitewashed and defensive about it. My silence and obvious embarrassment prompt half-hearted apologies from Nick and Maria. They didn't mean it that way, it's just They didn't realize I was brown because I act so. Well, you know, white. This conversation, my silence, the apologies, it all goes like clockwork every time. Why? Because I'm tired of trying to justify my existence to people who have already labeled me. I'm tri-racial, bi-ethnic, and monolingual. My demeanor and personality as a whole are apparently whitewashed, but my strong nose, rainforest thick hair, and tenacious brown ancestors apparently make me an affirmative action student. There's no box for that on the census. There's no space at Duke for someone who is simultaneously too brown and not brown enough. So, I make my own space. And in my space, there's actually a third version of that conversation. And it goes something like this same dorm room, same question, same players. Except this time, when Nick hears about my mixed background, he smiles and says, That's dope. How'd your parents meet? And when I tell him that my mom mistook took my dad's cubicle for her friend's cubicle and accidentally walked in asking how to work a floppy disk, Maria laughs and says, that's so 1980s. And then Nick, Maria, and I go get pizza from El Forno and eat it in my dorm room while watching our favorite SNL skits. I love this version of that conversation. I love the space that I've built here. But I sometimes wish that I didn't have to build it for myself. Sometimes I wish that the third version of that conversation was the only version that I knew.
0: Do you have any first reactions to Ila's piece? Any favorite lines?
2: First of all, I want to say thank you to whoever submitted this piece. Um, I think it speaks to so many universal themes of identity and finding acceptance Mm -hmm. among your friends at Duke. And... Some of the lines that really jumped out at me, you know, those are things that I struggled with when I was a student here. Uh, You know, for someone so brown, you're really whitewashed. Oh, Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I struggled a lot to find my place within the brown community at Duke, specifically the South Asian community. And I never really quite fit in with the group of people who are organizing mm. Awaz or all the dance teams. I was on a dance team, but still didn't really feel like home for me. Yeah. Uh, and I've had that charge leveled against me, like, oh, you're so whitewashed, as if mm. there is one way to be brown. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that this piece does really well is talk about, I want to make my own space. And it's a space where being brown is part of your identity, and it's a part of your identity that, you know, tells your story, but it's something that you get to define for yourself. Yeah,
0: it's not the only thing. Right, right. And moving to Me Too a little bit, do you think Me Too is a way that to help foster that sort of third space that Ila mentions?
2: Right. I think the the power of storytelling from a a place Mm -hmm. of your personal truth can help create that space. I mean, when I first started Me Too, the thing that I noticed is if you talked about identity in a really academic way, people kind of shut off. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if you if you lectured them or if they, ca- if they felt like you were lecturing them and telling them that they were wrong or racist or something, they really shut down the conversation. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about this is what my life has been like, this is what my identity is and means to me, that's something undeniable. Uh, It's something that no one can really say like, you're lying, this is is your truth. Um, And I think having that space to tell your truth, either through Me Too or just any conversation you're having with your friends, I mean, that is more powerful, I think, than anything abstract.
0: Yes, that personal lived experience is just so important. Even those abstract ideas, they just can't replace that personal experience right, right. We were also wondering, how do you feel like the production has evolved over the years from 2009 to 2019?
2: Right. I mean, I, I saw the show last night and you know, it's just astounding how much it has grown and evolved. And I think that everyone who has made me to what it is, over the years, I mean, it's I, I I'm just so amazed at the creativity and the passion, and also the way that they've brought into the conversation to incorporate not just race, which is how it started, mm-hmm. but other identity markers that you know really make someone who they are. Um, I, I love the idea of making it feel like a community and a conversation, uh, something that, you know, you make eye contact with the person performing and it really becomes a real story and a real conversation between the performer and the audience. Um, I think what has surprised me actually is how many of these themes are so common throughout the years. You know, I've taken a look at some of the monologues over the years and people are always struggling with who am I Who is my community? What is my relationship like with my parents, with my family? Uh, How do I find my place in this world? How do I get acceptance? And those are themes I think, seeing, looking backwards, it's interesting to see how that just keeps coming up. And having graduated years ago, uh, I can say that those themes will always follow you. Um, I don't think you ever fully figure out the answer to those questions. But I hope that the show and the conversations it opens up help you process it and and do it in a way that feels light and full of hope rather than you're stuck in the shadows dealing it with yourself
0: right there's something <clears throat> there's something universal about these themes right. about the experiences that keep going every year do you have any fond or maybe favorite memories of
2: the very first production <laughs> that you hosted ah uh, oh my gosh i mean i think one of the 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 mom- like there were so many moments of panic <laughs> of of building something from scratch i mean there was the fear that no one was going to submit that no one was going to sign up to act mm-hmm. and lots of spamming listservs later we had an amazing group of stories um i think you know that back then we did not have really a production team uh that was mm-hmm. in charge of marketing and i remember we had one facebook event and we had booked a black box theater on East Campus that seats maybe 80, 90 students. Oh, wow.
0: Um,
2: And I thought, okay, maybe like half of that will show up. (laughs) Uh, And I saw at one point the Facebook event had, I think, 500 people RSVP'd. Amazing. Yeah, amazing but also terrifying.
0: That must have been so stressful. It was uh,
2: so stressful uh, to be at home. Like I was looking up all the capacities of the different rooms and and spaces at Duke, and I find Found a lecture hall, which is not an ideal space for a, a theater production, but it seated around 400 students. Um, and I remember like struggling so hard to re- retrofit it for a production space uh, and being. And I still didn't think that all 500 of those people were going to show up. Um, But coming in and seeing people spilling onto the aisles and onto the stairs, I think there were maybe 450 people there altogether. I mean, it really grew. (laughs) (laughs) It is literally incredible. Like, I did not believe it. Um, But I thought maybe 50 people would show up, and it ended up becoming so big.
0: Going back to those very beginnings, what what motivated you to start the show? And what inspired you to use the idea of testimonial theater to create Me Too?
2: So my freshman year, I went to Common Ground. uh, And for those who don't know, it's a retreat that happened for fall break. And we talked about race and gender and sexuality mainly. And one of the hallmarks of Common Ground is at the end of the day, we turn the lights off, everyone's sitting in a circle, and there's a flashlight in the middle. And anyone can pick up the flashlight and share a story that somehow relates to what we talked about that day. And this was really one of the most impactful parts of Common Ground for me, that students would come up and pick up the flashlight and Share the most intimate stories about sexual assault or coming out or what it was like to be a student of color in the wake of the lacrosse scandal. Um, and all of these stories really impacted me in such a personal way, in a deep way, because you realize that this that these issues are not something abstract, it's something that a friend is facing, that's something that your classmate or roommate is facing. And I realized that, you know, 50-something people get to see, get to hear these stories at once. What if we could bring this to a wider audience? Um, And around the same time, I had submitted a monologue to All of the Above, which is another monologue show on campus that talks about women's issues. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what if we take these really great parts of our community and bring them together where we have a monologue Mm -hmm. show that specifically talks about race? And... Uh, I think since then, the show has evolved beyond race now. It's about so many great topics that need to be explored. I'm so glad it has has expanded like that. Um, But really, that, that core seed of telling your personal story can provoke conversation and change and make someone else feel heard, that's really stayed throughout
0: yeah i love that aspect just hearing a story and it's funny that you mentioned common ground i actually went my sophomore oh, spring break great. i think yeah. and they had the same flashlight mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyone can take it and share a story but i, n- right. I never linked those two, right. two monologues <laughs> and the flashlight scene so a couple more questions um creating Me Too monologues, this huge production, how has that stayed with you after Duke, Mm -hmm. if it has, and what things have you taken away from it?
2: Right. Uh, So I think one of the things that Me Too monologues reminds you is that you might have an idea of what someone's outside is like, and and you kind of project into, you know, they must have this life, they must have these issues going Mm -hmm. on. But we compare ourselves to people's outsides and you don't know what's going on in their inside. And I think what these stories reveal is that everyone's struggling with something. Everyone is trying to figure something out in their life. And that message is really easy to forget, um, especially when you're out in the real world and you're working and you have a job and you just want to get everything done, out the door, go on with your life. And you might not be as empathetic or compassionate with the people that you're surrounded with. And I think what Me Too monologues taught me is never to respond in a knee-jerk way, like assuming something about someone else. Mm. Um, Always assume positive intent. Uh, Always believe that there's something deeper in there that you just don't know. Um, Everyone knows something that you don't know. All these lessons of compassion and empathy, I think are tools for living life beyond Duke Um, and I've been really imperfect about that you know sometimes I lose my temper with someone and it's so easy (laughs) to slip up (laughs) yes it's very easy to slip up Um, and that's why it was really great to come back to this show and you know immerse myself in these stories and remind myself like take the time to be more compassionate take the time to be more empathetic
0: oh that's wonderful I love that answer um, last question. Do you feel like Me Too's reach has grown beyond what you could have imagined?
2: I think beyond. All the way back in 2009. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in 2009, honestly, I thought it was going to be 45 people in a dark room later leaving and being like, well, that was lame. Uh, so this is definitely. <laughs> and then you got
0: 450 people. <laughs> exactly.
2: This has definitely surpassed every one of my wildest dreams and expectations. Um, I think one of the. The things that was unexpected for me is how much producing this kind of show really changes you. Not just attending it, but mm-hmm. writing a monologue or performing in a monologue, helping produce it, um, the hustle that it takes to put this thing together, I think has a transformative effect on everyone who's involved with it. So I think that's something that you know I did not anticipate, but I hear back from people who've been involved with the show and. They take that with them as they move okay. on with their life, uh, whether it's one of the former directors of Me Too monologues starting a tech workers monologue show in the Bay Area. No way. That's I know. so it's cool. Pretty amazing. Uh, or someone else who, you know, she is writing a book on effortless perfection myth. Oh, um, wow. And I just think it's amazing to see not just like physically how many people have come seen it, but what is the internal transformation to people's lives. That's been yeah. really special.
0: I love those after Duke Me Too stories. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking with us. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you again, Priyanka, for being on the show and joining us today. As always, please share your own stories through our website, which can be found at org. We are on the iTunes store and we would love if you left us a review. Let us know what you think.